A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So, welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. Myself, Mike French, along with uh, Professor Ross Tucker, and I have just returned from the World Athletics Championships in Budapest, where I was at that for a good 10 days. And uh, the strange thing in about when you go to World Championships events like the World uh, Championships in, in Budapest is that you kind of suffer from a bit of jet lag. And you say, well, how can you suffer from jet lag when you live in the t- same time zone <laughs> here in South Africa as you were you know, living in Budapest? Well, I can tell you that you, you live in this sort of twilight zone when you go to events like that because you wake up in the morning. We did a bit of pop- we did podcasts in the morning for most of the mornings that we could do podcasts. I had a bit of a light nap after that. I, then I'd go into the um, into the um, media center, which was the coolest place to be in the whole of Hungary because even my hotel room wasn't coping with the heat in Hungary. I would work there for a couple of hours. Then I'd go and do get some um, some lunch and go into town. But then you go to the athletics at six o'clock. That finishes at ten o'clock. There's press conference. By the time you get out of there, it's closer to twelve, and you have this continuous cycle. So by the time you come back to normal life, you've been getting to bed at twelve one o'clock in the morning, yeah. and getting up at eight o'clock, half past eight in the morning, and then just trying to survive the day. And you work on adrenaline, um, which is kind of what happens at those events mm. because you, you like the last day, you want to watch all the events you can watch. You you you, you don't want to be distracted by that. I was running up and down the stairs of the media tribune. Now, the Media Tribune is a huge block of seats that they have at the actual track. And it was a, a fairly substantial climb. Now, Clay and Jornay would have struggled to get up some of those stairs, I can tell you. <laughs> but um, but we were right at the top um, because we weren't, you know, the serious BBC, Mail and Guardian type people. So we were right at the top, which means that the walk from the bottom of the stairs to the top was probably a good five or six minutes of you know, nine percent climbing. <laughs> no lifts. <laughs> no lifts, and it was thirty-six degrees with one hundred percent humidity. So it was. A, I think I got pretty fit that week working at World Champs. So anyway, we are going to get onto the World Champs, but we're going to digress just very, very quickly because uh, we have had some requests from um, some of our listeners and those of you following us on Patreon to have a bit of a chat about the Volta España, which is happening at the moment. And we're only a few days into that event, but we just wanted to make some useful, well, useful or interesting observations about what's happening there. At the moment, Remco Venepool is in the red jersey, having just got that jersey at, at I think it was the third or fourth day where he's three. day three, gets mm. to the top of the, one of the big climbs and sprints <laughs> over the top and gets a few seconds there, forgets the red. But he's had a pretty unfortunate run of events <laughs> so far at the at the vault, hasn't he? <laughs> the most entertaining part of the world has been Remco at the finish line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because whether it's, uh, I mean, I don't he finished that time trial in the dark and I reckon hadn't even come to a stop. <laughs> he was already protesting. Yes. And they didn't actually even do that badly. They gained a lot of time on, on Vinegar and Roglic, which would be his main concerns. They didn't win the stage. Maybe that's why. But mm-hmm. it was a, it was a stupid thing to start a stage where some people would start in the daylight and finish in the daylight and other people would start. And it was actually quite considerable darkness. 
I mean, I, you, we ride sometimes and we say, okay, if we don't start by this time, it's going to be in the dark. And everyone can anticipate what's that, what that's like. But it was only dark because so, of the conditions. If it had not been raining and stormy, it probably would have been perfectly fine. Still, I think it still would have been like the sun. They, they only started a few minutes before the scheduled sunset. Mm. And that's the sunset in the open. Like mm. Now you're in the city where there's buildings and so on. So, mm. I, I don't know. It's, but they, might, they would have known about that before the event. I mean, the pro teams <laughs> can't protest after the fact. The riders must must have known. You must look at yes, that and say, course. I'm starting at 8.15. That's pretty late. So mm. I'm wondering, hang on, 20 minutes, that's 8.35. Hmm, this doesn't seem... So you'd think mm. so. you think no so. No one yeah. raised it before. Mm. Mm. So, but still, it's just... Anyway, and then he and then he crashes, and then he crashes. But then, remember, in between that, they had a day that they wanted to neutralize the stage, mm-hmm. and the organizers didn't want to do it at the same place they did. So in the end, they sort of unofficially neutralized it. Well, it was half neutralized. Yeah. So yeah. half of it was you could win the stage, but there was nothing to do with the GC involved. Mm. So and it was, and it was interesting because, like, I showed interviews with Venegor and Evanapool and Thomas all on the start line of that second day talking about where the new official times would be taken and is going to make a difference. And all three of them said something along the lines of it just goes to show that the race doesn't really care about the riders. I think Thomas said we're just, what did he say, clowns in a circus, circus animal, Mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Vinegar, very deadpan, just said it goes to show they're not really interested in the riders' welfare. And Evanapool said a similar thing. So the first three days of the Vuelta were not... Not ones that I'm sure that race organization well, wants to I, remember. I, I, I mean, in all fairness, is it about the riders or is it about the people watching it, the entertainment value? Because I think there must be a there must be a, a, a fine line between keeping the event entertaining. And Volt has always been a very entertaining mm. event. And even the Tour de France has changed some of its format because the Tour yeah. de France used to be officially race. Race week one was sprints. Sprints, Formula Second week, okay. the Alps, mm. then the Pyrenees. Mm. Now, in the Volta, they have you know, a mountaintop finish on stage three. So it's about keeping the crowd entertained yeah. and the riders can complain all they like, but we want to see the best riders in the world being given the ultimate test. And even though there's drama, drama is what drives viewership. Yeah, it's not unique to stage races. They no. think Glasgow world champs. Yeah. Too many corners, too sketchy a course around. It's basically a crit. Okay, so what? It's hell of exciting to watch. It's great to watch. And I dare say the cyclists maybe didn't love it, but everyone watching it did. Correct. And then remember back in the Jira, they cancelled, or they didn't cancel, but they significantly shortened stages because of the weather. Mm-hmm. Now that I can understand. There gets to a point where it's very clearly going to be unsafe. Mm-hmm. But there was controversy then as well. And then you get you get the usual guys rolling out and saying, in my day, we'd have ridden. Yes. Okay, but it's not your day. But at the same time, at what point do the riders actually say no? We only we will only race this kind of stage, mm. and then you take out that jeopardy and the excitement of mm. something new and challenge. I mean, the, the yeah, the, some of the great stages in Tour de France's and multi the, are the are the particularly hazardous ones. Correct. Paris Roubaix in the mud when Sonny Cabrelli won it, and you couldn't tell one cyclist apart from another, mm. except Fanapool had white, white shoes because he kept taking his shoe covers off or something. Mm. Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, one day they'll say, no, no, Paris Roubaix is too slippery, too wet, too dangerous, maybe. Yeah. And the riders, so, they go out there with it because they know what they're going to face, but they still take it on because that, the viewership is there, and that's the challenge of the event, is And it? I, I rode yeah. those cobbles, the Carrefour de Labra and Mont Saint-Preval, in the dry, 
earlier this year <laughs> on a bike with 38 little tires. Incredible bike. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified yeah. going over those cobbles at 35k an hour on my own. Wow. Not in a bunch of six or seven at 45k an hour. Sure. So I'm not begrudging the cyclist the, mm-hmm. the, the permission, as it were, to say no thank you to this concept. But it's mm-hmm. I want to see it too. Yeah. So yeah. I wouldn't want to do it, but I want to watch it. Yeah, I guess it raises a, a wider question around sport in that you sport in professional sport these days is all about is all about viewership and we'll talk a bit about how that was affecting things like the world championships and athletics. But you're always battling against the fact that you've got an audience of people who want to watch an exciting drama involved on the field. If you make it too safe or any event too safe, essentially you take away that drama. That's always been somewhat criticism around changes in rugby in rugby laws where they, yeah. people in rugby laws think that the game is too safe. Therefore, you don't get the the danger aspect. You don't get the yeah. drama aspect of those things. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that – Often a discussion, the wealth of the players balanced against the marketing and the tractability of an event. Um, and it is there is a conflict there for sure. No, no doubt. I mean, Rugby World Cup's coming up and we will do, as I said on our previous pod, we'll do a little bit around that because there's still, yeah. I mean, at least now the Farrell case is closed. Last time we spoke, that was still <laughs> hanging over heads, certain people's heads. Um but it's the same thing. Okay, so there's a risk now of. of so what? Just refer, just to remind everybody what happened with um, uh, with Farrell. What, what, what was the what was the in conclusion there? So a sequence of events. He makes a tackle against yeah. Wales in a prep game. The referee assesses it. Says that meets the red card threshold potentially. Definitely meets the yellow. Off you go. The new thing in the sport now is that that red card decision is now being effectively outsourced or handed off to someone outside the refereeing on the field called the bunker and that person looks at it from as many angles as they need with as many replays as they require and they say okay that meets the red card criteria why because it was a direct head contact and a dangerous tackle that was high in danger and mitigation should not or did not apply so it's upgraded to red the player then gets the opportunity to appeal that which is a normal thing it's like law and order you know you get the police pick you up and then you have a court case yeah <laughs> and it's that's run by two different parties you don't you don't get arrested by a policeman who then hears your appeal it's a different thing and that was the first source of confusion in this instance so the player goes to the appeal on the tuesday and that that judiciary committee three people a three person panel decides that in fact mitigation should have applied which means it should have been yellow and so the red card is effectively wiped off or rescinded mm. and then all hell breaks loose because now twitter goes wild i've never i've never encountered twitter so wild and like crazy united in its in its um anger <laughs> and wrath against rugby and world mm. rugby for no longer caring about player welfare yeah meanwhile and now that this is closed i can talk about it world rugby had this had a similar reaction to it not potentially with the same emotion but saying like, oh, the foul red card's no longer a red card. We we really need to look into this. And so the discussion instantly begins is do we appeal? Because now World Rugby can appeal that because it's our refs who gave the red. The judicial decision has effectively overruled that. So then now a conversation has to be had is do we allow the judiciary to remain unopposed or do we actually appeal the judiciary to say no we're going to defend the decision because it's in principle the right thing to do so by the thursday friday that appeal was announced that appeal was then heard the following week and that appeal was upheld so then it goes back to red so it looks hell of untidy difficult to follow because on-field decision is one that the ref gives the citing and the sanction 
the rescinding of the card is an independent judiciary. It's still linked to the sport, but it's still independent. What 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 is it? Is it called something? It's a JO. It's the citing commission. We're digressing here, but it is an interesting story. It being the the citing procedure. Yes, in other words, the banker is a independent no, body. The bank of, is World Rugby run. All right. It's the referee, oh, yes, they, they it's the the referee body of World Rugby that then, then gives that decision. Then who, so that's who the are they, law part. That's the law part. So who are they appealing to to get that decision? Well, the player reviewed? goes to a judicial officer. It's a panel of three. Is and that also part of World Rugby? No, that's independently run, and it was set up specifically to be independent because right. otherwise you're effectively asking World Rugby to mark its own homework. Right. You're, you're okay. creating a situation where the player has no legitimate right to appeal right. Their, own, their own sanction or their own guilt, as it were, and then sanction, right? Because yes. that's what you're basically going there as a player. I own foul, admit to a degree of guilt, but I don't believe it met the red card so I'm not guilty of a red card offense only yellow and that has to be heard in my and I think it's true it has to be heard by an independent group that is not invested in the decision on the field because Mm. otherwise it would it would be like in the law in the real world of law and order it making you appeal to the same police who arrested you you Mm. can't they're gonna of course they're gonna back their own (laughs) decision so in order to provide the player with the appropriate rights to appeal and to make their case and potentially reduce their sanction. It has to be independent. But it can't be entirely independent because it still falls within the governance of world rugby. So the way that it works is that there's a panel of these people and they're drawn from former players, legal experts and so on, coaches, but but retired, who are then judicial officers. So there's a pool of them available, but the actual citing commission is run and administered by a specific competition not world rugby okay does that make sense yes it makes sense so you go to this but essentially who's pays them i'm not sure okay right. i think in this it's the, it's whoever administers it so in this instance it was six nations right uh if it happened in in the uh super rugby championships or if it in a club ca- competition if it happened in england would be the prl if it happened okay. in the Ireland, Wales, Scotland, South Africa competition would be the URC as the administrative body that would then deliver that that site, that appeal process. Mm. But then World Rugby can appeal it, not itself, because now it's independent. That's the whole point, right? World yeah. Rugby can appeal the the decision made by an independent, but you'd never appeal yourself. Can yeah. you imagine that? That's yeah. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's what happened. And that's not unique. Like Toby Amosan, now we're switching sports, the Nigerian mm. hurdler. Mm. This is the sequence that happens with anti-doping. World Athletics has established an anti-doping unit called the Athletics Integrity Unit. Yes. They are responsible for the deliver- delivering the anti-doping mandate in that sport. They catch someone, Toby Amundsen, for missing three tests. That's called a whereabouts failure, and they sanction her. That's the law part. She now has an opportunity to appeal that sanction, saying I'm not guilty or I don't deserve the sentence I've been given. That appeal is heard independently. In her case, that appeal was successful, so... She having initially been suspended, her suspension was lifted. And now the Athletics Integrity Unit are saying, we're going to appeal that. It's exactly the same thing that happened with Farrell. It, mm. it, it's literally step by step the same thing. Yeah. And it's hard. <laughs> it's kind of how it has to be, you know. But I, for sure, the, the World Rugby Appeal of that decision was made on principle that we have this decision-making process that needs to give red cards when red cards are warranted. And if a if what's perceived to be a clear and egregious mistake is made in that process, then it has to be corrected. And that's why you appeal it. Because if you don't, you're A, you're not backing your own officials. 
B, you're undermining whatever happens next and what's happened before because consistency is mm. the fundamental you're thing. You're almost establishing a precedent. Exactly. Yeah. So now yeah. you allow this one to go, yeah. World Cup coming up, what's the next one look like? And if that decision's not the same, and you'll never get 100% agreement, mm. but if it's a clear and obvious thing where you've actually, this panel has made a bad call, mm turning this red into yellow, then you have to sort of challenge that. So that's that's exactly what was done. So so from where I stand, I think the process worked really well. If if I was to be critical of it, I would say that even though that JO, that judicial process, is independent of world rugby, the there is a need for alignment from on the field to off the field. You know, the law and order parts of the whole equation, they have to be better aligned. Mm. And so maybe the learning from the whole own fail thing is that we need better congruency between the decision maker with the whistle in his mouth or the bunker and the person who then hears the, the, the player's appeal. And that, that could be a calibration exercise of educating and informing people about how to assess these things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those, those hearings, are, you know, you're going to get Owen Fowl come in there with his, with his barrister. Like yeah. These are top, top legal yeah, guys. Well, that's significant that's a, money involved in these decisions. Exactly. Yeah. The implications are important. So mm-hmm. he's going to go there. They're going to present a properly polished argument about why Farrell shouldn't have got a red card. It's hard for those JOs. And if they're not upskilled and really robust in their understanding of the head contact process, there's high probability that they can be talked into changing the decision. Mm. And so if, if World Rugby needs to change something, I suspect it would be to try and ensure that there's better alignment between the World Rugby officials and the World Rugby JOs. But you can't you can't own that process because again, mm. and does it make, because I posted this on Twitter and a whole bunch of people said it's ridiculous that it's independent. Mm. If it wasn't independent, it wouldn't work. Absolutely. Because <laughs> like, no, now a player would have no, everything, yeah. yeah it would, a player would have no reasonable opportunity to appeal and make their own case because mm. they'd, yeah, they'd be appealing to someone to change their mind yeah. as opposed to an independent person to rule on an event. It's, yeah. So we can we can certainly align better and do a better job of establishing a consistency or a congruency, as I called it, so that mm. independent groups of people can look at the same event, the Owen Farrell tackle, and reach the same conclusion. Yeah. But changing the structure of it, so, so as I see it, it worked well procedurally. The mistake was made at the first sighting commission where they mm. mitigated what I don't think should have been. Just a quick thing. I mean, we don't want to spend all the time talking about no, there'll be lots rugby, of rugby, but talk, there will be lots of rugby yeah. talk in the next uh, month or so. But we're eight days away from the Rugby World Cup as we sit here. Just from your side, and maybe you can talk about this, and maybe you can't, but when you look at the World Cup and rugby coming up, what are the things that, what are the learnings that World Rugby wants to get out of the, the Rugby World Cup this year? In other words, what are you watching for as a sports scientist in the area? Is it is it what we all expect? It's about the, the contact and it's about injury prevention? Is that the main focus when people yeah, look so back on this Rugby World Cup from a... A few things. One is you don't want to see any major controversies where a concussion happens and is missed. So the first layer is, does the system that have been put in place to identify a concussion work? The worst thing that could possibly happen is, particularly in a high-profile match, a player goes down, looks like they've been knocked unconscious, they get up and they keep playing, and no one sees it. And there have been cases like George North was one, uh, Smith from Australia was another. There have been a couple like that. Then it's massive controversy because now you're leaving a concussed player on the field. So mm. that that's worst-case scenario is that happens. Mm. But then below that, you want to be able to see how many concussions are happening. And we know that the global rate in rugby at the moment is 16 to 19 per thousand hours. I'd like to see 12 per thousand hours at the World Cup because then we can say, OK, 
Okay, the tournament is looking a little bit safer concussion-wise. And the rules that you're putting in place in the last year are making a difference. We'd like to attribute it to that, but it's so many. There's so many factors that I would be very hesitant to confidently say we changed X and we got Y. But why not? Why why wouldn't be able to just make that call? Because it's a well, because it's a small tournament, forty-eight matches, and so there is a possibility. Then forty-eight matches, you see thirty concussions. It's a lot of tackles in, in, in forty-eight another, matches. Yeah, they are. I mean, that'll be ten thousand tackles. Yeah. So you're right in that respect. That's a sample size. Yes, but it could be that in the next set of forty-eight matches, there are forty-five concussions, and you yeah. you catch it on a low end of the wave or a high end of the wave. So. I'm not, and I'm not saying I would be paralyzed into um, neutrality by the. <laughs> I'll, I'll certainly say, you know, for fewer concussions, we got to keep going. The last World Cup saw fewer concussions than the club game sees, and so we and we did. We even wrote an opinion piece in the British Journal of Sports Medicine saying that we believe that this was in part the result of continually messaging about making safer tackles and so on. Mm. But then the analysis that really needs to be done is how often are players exposing themselves to the highest risk situations, upright, mm. high contact tackles. I, I'll be praying for no red cards. I mean, it is just like, it's not, no one wants to see them. Not you as a fan, not me as someone trying to use them. I, would, I don't want to see in the 19th minute of France, New Zealand's opening game or the seventh minute South Africa Island. I don't want to see uh, Peter Steff de Toy red carded. I mean, what's the screw yeah, up? I don't mind if it's a red card to the team I'm not supporting <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah. There's no doubt that like some red cards are worse than better than others. <laughs> yes. but, but you don't. No one wants to see that. Like so, like there's like a lot of nerves that get, big games aren't ruined by red cards. But at the same time, I think we've gotten to the point where we've we've got this high tackle sanction process in place to try and reduce the number of high-risk tackles in the game to both players, the tackler and the ball carrier. I'm not convinced that the message is getting through to the coaches and thus the players, and I'm not convinced that the players' behavior is changing. Because when we look, for instance, and we'll use it because it's topical, the Owen Farrell tackle, if the legal height of the tackle was below the sternum, that tackle can't happen because Farrell would know that he can't target the, the opponent's shoulder. And that's what's happened. He hasn't targeted the head. He's targeted the shoulder and then hit the head by mistake. So he's he's done something slightly reckless. And because it hasn't gone well for him, he's paid the price for it. Does that make sense? Yes. If you told any player that the legal height of the tackle is 20 centimeters lower than you currently aim and you've got to go below the sternum or below the ball, those tackles would no longer be in the game. And so the point I'm trying to make is that it is possible to tackle lower. It is possible to avoid the head of the ball carrier, yet it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And it's not happening because the players haven't been forced lower. They've been asked to go lower. Yeah, which that's, yeah. And if you don't, yeah. So Unless you're going to be penalized, you're not going to really bother it because it's about stopping the player. Yes. Yeah, and so people a pro are, game. So people are saying that these head contacts are unavoidable. They're just part of the game. And the, the response to that is, yeah, they're unavoidable in the current context of the way the game is played and the way tackles are made. And that context is, is one that allows a player to target the opponent at the height of the shoulders. If you took that option away from them, there would be no accidental head, head shoulder-to-head co- contacts the way that we saw in that instance. Mm. So that's the dilemma that the sport has. I saw a piece the other day. Um, Gareth shared it on Patreon. A guy called Willie Stewart has said, this World Cup will be the end of rugby as we know it, which is this classic Stewart hyperbole 
media headline piece type but, stuff. Because he's what? He's claiming it's going to be... He's claiming the sport has to change like out of sight in order to reduce these. And it's quite possible that the height of the tackle needs to be lowered as it has been in the community game. And there's a whole bunch of things going on to push for changes and so on. I, I still think it's, it's about incremental change. And so, yeah, it might be the end of the game as we know it, but it's not going to be transformed into something different, you know? It's going to, it's going to evolve mm. in a slightly different direction potentially. But there's a lot of... Anyway, this is maybe a conversation for a dedicated podcast. Yeah, it's, it's very mm. interesting. And I think those of you watching the Rugby World Cup, I, I almost think there's, a, there's obviously a school of people that might say the game is changing, is going to change because it's the opposite of what he's suggesting is that, in fact, it's, it's not the game that people have been used to for the decade before because mm. it's maybe because it's being safe. It's not the same imposing game. You can't impose yourself physically as much as you could. And the South African style of play, for instance, is going to be challenged by these new rules because you can't just run into somebody and impose your weight and strength you, you have to go in there with a with a technical ability to tackle rather maybe than just, you know. i will say one thing and it's um, i know that i'm talking here with a degree of bias because it's the only coach i really know well and that's that the south african coach's approach to the high tackle issues has been unbelievable mm. so impressive because nina is a physiotherapist Mm. I remember the very first time we presented to the defense coaches. At that stage, he was the defense coach for the Springboks. Yeah. And his answer to us straight away was, the problem is players can't tackle low because they're never trained to tackle low and they don't actually have the movement patterns and the skills. And then he started listing off all these muscles and movements in Latin. <laughs> and so, hang on, this is a coach talking. No one, else, no one else that I've met has the ability to solve the problem in that way. And so they, I know for a fact that they've developed drills and training methods to try and teach players to get lower and down, but to retain the same power. And they're teaching at, it in at, a, at national, international level. Yeah, the Springboks. It's interesting. And it's he told like me, and to I'm sure he would mind me saying this, is that when the, when the tackle director thing first came out, go lower, go lower, he went away and he was like, he's pissed off. Mm. He said, these guys are changing rugby. We're taking our strengths away. And, he, he, and he's literally said he went away and he thought about it a little bit more. He spoke to some people and he realized, actually, you know what? This is the way the wind is blowing. It's going to happen. And I've actually got an opportunity to be the first person to anticipate this and to get ahead of it and to solve the problem without losing on the essence of what the sport is about. Mm. And so he solved the problem. And now, look, I'm not saying we're not going to get some. We saw a yellow card at the weekend for Peter Steff to toy against New Zealand. <laughs> and they will happen because some of them are. But, but I think they're not acts of God is what I'm trying to get yeah. at they're not totally unavoidable and I is hope that the World Cup shows that and that mm. we don't just get one a match one controversy a match I mean if the own fail thing happened in a World Cup quarter final or semi final oh my god mm. I'll have to delete Twitter yeah absolutely <laughs> and I mean just I mean I know we feel like we've been moving heavily into the rugby, rugby scene podcast. here but, but it is interesting because I was actually watching by some chance I went down the rabbit hole of YouTube the other day and I was watching a video of Jus van der Vestesen, um tackling Joe Maloma oh, yeah. back in the day and it's a very famous moment Joe Maloma goes through the middle of the centre and the only person that's left between him and the the, the try line mm. is this tiny little scrum of called Just van der Vestesen, who tackles him low and takes them down um, mm. and, it, and it shows you know that the technical ability of Jus van der Vestesen to tackle a big guy like that mm. if he tried to tackle him by going high he It'd wouldn't have tackled him and bounced off him mm. so actually tackling low is the way to go in that situation so, it was, I remember, I'm sure most people who watch the sport will remember that tackle yeah, it was iconic it's iconic yeah. any time the guy was ever tackled one on one in that World Cup mm -hmm. Remember against England, he ran over three people, all, all yeah. who tried the same thing. Tried to try the same thing. Well, they but, tried but, to go high, didn't they? Some of them, yeah. Mm. So, so, so just on that, 
in the aftermath of Farrow, like everyone had these just thermonuclear takes, you know. Like, like this shows that World Rugby doesn't care about player welfare. And some of them are people I would have expected better from. There's a journalist called Sam Peters who's written a book called Concussed, and he's actually attended meetings that World Rugby's organized at our invitation because we want to engage with the media more often and show them some of the challenges and what's being done. And he tweets something along the lines of like way back in 2013, the sport made some changes that looked on surface like they'd be effective but now we realize it was all just lip service and the sport doesn't care about welfare and this own feral thing highlights it so first point is that in 2011 2013 that own feral tackle happened eight times a match and no one even noticed yeah like that that was a normal tackle back then so the only reason this is a controversy is because things have changed in a real material way so it's completely wrong and unfair in my opinion to say that the sport is doing lip service because it's actually invited all this negativity and controversy on it by making change. It'd be so easy for the sport to say, you know what, just tackle how you always have. We'll deal with the concussions after they happen. But it's not. It's trying to reduce how often concussions happen. Mm-hmm. And then it's getting criticized for that. So it actually can't win. I think there are people mm-hmm. who are trading on the controversy in both, on both sides of the coin. If you do nothing about it, they'll, they'll be criticizing it and blaming. And if you try and do something about it, they'll blame too. So what's the sport to do? It's very mm. difficult. Yeah. Well, it's something to watch out for at the Rugby World Cup. And I'm looking forward to uh, getting behind some of those games. It's going to be an exciting month of entertainment. I'm sorry we digress slightly from the Volta, <laughs> but um, we, we have a little bit. And it's I think for those of you watching the Volta, we'll probably get into the weeds of that a little bit later on uh, mm. once we can uh, see where the, where the trend is going. But uh, Venepool, as both Ross and I have discussed on a couple of occasions, for those of you who didn't and we don't we don't uh, we like to punt other podcasts that we really feel are worth listening to um the lantern rouge podcast mm. which is outstanding they not only do brilliant stuff on youtube but they're also brilliant in terms of their content on their podcast and they did an interview with Rimke yeah, Venepool. like an hour and 40 minute long i mean it was it's so it's, good it's one of those podcasts when you listen to it i didn't know much about Rimke Venepool. by the time i'd finished listening yeah, to that podcast it. i was a convert and a fan a mature, resp- lovely guy, and you can hear he's he's, he's a really mature brain, you know, and funny too. <laughs> it was I, I absolutely loved it. It was probably yeah. about three weeks ago. So if you go look at yeah, like they're doing a Vuelta daily, so you might have to scroll a little bit to find it. I'll but try. It, I, I, I'll, I'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes. Thanks. Yeah. Highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, he, he is, and he's so insightful. Like they yeah. they talked to him about the time trial route in Glasgow and what his strategy was, and he doesn't give you that bullshit like yeah. cliched. You know, just to do my best and focus on no. He actually says it was to go slightly above FTP on all the uphill bits, use the downhills to recover slightly below, like really technical stuff, straight in. And I remember listening to him thinking like the level of A, the guys are interviewing Benji Nason and Patrick Bro, they must have really good rapport to get a guy to open up on technical stuff like that in the first few minutes of a talk. So they must know him. But then later on he just talks so candidly about that day in the Vuelta and that particular crash when he injured himself. He talks about his first exposure to the cobbles of Roubaix and he talks about accidents that he's had and how yeah. hard it was to come back and Brilliant. how he couldn't go to the bathroom by himself for two months. And so people had to, like, yeah. candid, insightful. I still find him, I still think he's a little bit petulant in the heat of the moment, but that's that's not well, he's a young man. He's exactly, yeah, yeah. and he's and he's pumped full of adrenaline. He races on more emotion than I think often you give credit for. Big time. And uh, now, in the, so for instance, in the Vuelta, now every interview he gives, I want to listen to him. Yes, because I think he gives real value in interviews. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I am now a fan of his character. Yeah. Um, and there was a lovely moment in um, the stage yesterday where Caden Groves won the stage, but there was an intermediate sprint about yes. 10 k's away from the finish. And um, I mean, the teammates him at Groves, but he kicks Groves and gets the points because he wants the bonus seconds. And at the end, when they're getting to the sort of warm down area, old Groves says to him, oh, you, you think you're a sprinter now? And um, Remco Vanderpool has this interaction with him where they talk a bit about the fact that he was just looking for those points. Nobody seemed to be going for them, so he thought he'd give it a bash. Mm. So there's this kind of slightly irreverent, but quite mature but open demeanor that he has. So he's mm. going to be a he's going to be a popular and amazing to think about where he came from. You know, this this very very good soccer player mm. who suddenly within a year had gone from being. Never riding a bike to suddenly winning national championships. And, yeah. and he, he talks about that on this podcast. Yeah, it's super sensational. good insight. Yeah. It's so, so cool, it shows though. you a, a, massive, a massive talent. So but that's, that's the content out of just, and, and almost as a, in a way to tee up the main subject, is that's the kind of content that I think track and field is lacking. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you don't hear, like, imagine an hour long with Faith Kibiagon talking about her approach to world champs mm. and so on. With that, I can't see it happening. Mm. Imagine, and that's with Faith Kibiagon, who you know. She's very, maybe, she maybe speak very well. Maybe Carsten Warhol, maybe Ingebrigtsen would mm. be like that. Josh Kerr, I've seen a couple of times mm. since he beat Ingebrigtsen in like press conferences. He seems like the kind of guy I would want to listen to for an hour. Yeah. Because he does seem like a straight talking, direct, mm. insightful guy. But they're too infrequent in track and field. In cycling, you think Mohoric, I think mm. now Evanapool. Mm. Uh, in the women's race, Kashin Nivadoma gave an interview after after coming second on the Tourmalet. Look, I don't know. There's something about the cyclists that just makes them really listenable. Yes. And I yeah. haven't seen anyone get that out of track and field athletes well, ever. Well, maybe we should take it on as a personal challenge. I would and see love if we to. Can get, yeah. I would love to do that. Let's yeah, see if so. we can get some of those interviews. Some, some I'll tell you one so. person I won't be interviewing, but I won't say that openly now. <laughs> but she won the hundred meters. Just <laughs> say it openly. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, mean, she carry Richardson. I mean, we, even we, there, like, do you think? Uh, yeah. Could, Dif- could you see a circumstance where someone did get her on for an hour and a half, like the Lantern Rouge guys got Evanapool, and she actually does show a side of herself that makes you go, actually, you know what? There's something yeah, there, which, which is kind of what you want. I to could hear. see that. Yeah, and certainly would improve her popularity. Mm. You know, I mean, the media thing's an interesting one because we talked about the success of events like. Um, the Formula One Netflix series um, mm. and how that has changed Formula One in the States in particular. And now it's gone on to the Tour de France, it's gone on to cycling, it's, uh, sorry, it's gone on to golf and it's gone on to, um, what was the other one? Uh, there was four that I've seen so far, but there's a whole lot of those sort of sporting things. Now they're doing mm. a track and field mm. one, mm. which is going to come out in 2024 around yeah. Noah Lars and the sprinters. Yeah. Um, but it shows you how the sport is beginning to understand and embrace the role that the media plays. And it's not just having a social media following. It's about actually embracing uh, other media outside that. Mm. Netflix is one of those. But Noah Lyles being at the World Championships, his conversation with us at the press conference versus Shakari Richardson makes him hugely popular with the media versus yeah. somebody who potentially is not going to be particularly popular, but some elements of the media. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess... In the modern world, as a professional sportsman, being media friendly is a critical part of long-term success. Really. And again, we said Lyle seems to understand the assignment. And I don't think, yeah, again, does. that Lyle is always entirely authentic and himself, but he's he knows what he needs to be for it. And so he does it. And I think that's yeah. actually quite commendable. 
Yeah. I think the thing you said about the NBA world champion in what? Did you see that? Were you there for that no. press conference? Uh, but probably was, was that yeah. the, Was that the 100 or the 200? I think it was the 200. No, they didn't have a press conference for the 200, I didn't think, did they? I think there was. Yeah, there might, yes, di- I think there was. I think I might have missed that one, actually. Yeah, and so he basically really talked. He's talking about how difficult it is to become a world champion because it is literally the whole world. And he compares it to the NBA. And he says, like, you know, in the NBA, you win that title and they call you the world champion. But what was world champion or what? And it's kicked off a big thing because, okay, there's nothing quite as um, sensitive as an American superiority complex yes. around sports especially. So a lot of them were triggered massively by it. Number of the basketball players went on Instagram and so on and started like calling him out for it. Yes. Uh, one of them said, I'll take you in a 200 any day. Smoke. <laughs> what did he say, buddy? I'll smoke you in a 200 as if. I mean, I don't think these guys could sprint 200 meters. No. Like great athletes, by the way. I'm not dismissing yeah, NBA sure. players. They are unbelievable athletes. But there's a big difference between a 200-meter sprinter and an NBA player in, in athletics. But you've got to look at the potential pool of competition, you see, in that race. And we've, we've talked in, yeah. in those events. So I would argue that the number of potential professional basketball players who are wanting to be part of the NBA versus those at the top echelons of world athletics, I would argue that basketball players is probably more of them. I mean, it's a, I don't know the exact numbers, but there are, a, there's a lot of competition at the top level of world, of NBA basketball. Yeah. I don't think it's the same at World Athletics. I don't think the same depth of, is there. No, and the incentives to succeed are not there. No. Because there's everyone wants money. one of those multi-million dollar year, contra- year yes. contracts. So I, and I agree. And so I don't, I don't think that Lyles's um, statement is actually all that accurate. No, I Agree. Literally, he's right. Like when you're the NBA champion, you're not the world champion. To be the world champion in basketball, you have to win the world, the world, world title, which yes. is now on the go. So yes. in a few weeks from now, the USA will be potentially, likely, the world champion. Then they can say it. But because you played for the, uh, I don't even know, won it this year. Well, it's like baseball having a World Series. Yeah, although that's named <laughs> after the newspaper that mm. sponsored it. It was called oh, The World. It? And so the title yeah. of the tournament was The World Series. Okay. I think I think I read that once. It might have been an urban legend. But anyway, so Lars is literally correct. But I don't think it's a particularly valuable conversation to have because you go yeah. down all these little rabbit holes. But what it has done, and I'm pretty sure Lars was calculated in doing it, is it's put him and track and field onto American sports news shows. Yes. Because they've all been discussing it. And so he's made track and field part of the conversation. Now, I don't know if he's scheming and strategic enough to do it like this on purpose. I suspect he is. I think he's very deliberate. And so I think, because when he said it, it came across as a very rehearsed, it looked like I was watching someone act again, which is not unusual with Lyles. And maybe it's just the way he is. But, (laughs) But his delivery of it looked scripted. Yes. And so I think he did it on purpose to try and put the sport on the news and say, you know, no such thing as bad publicity. Now ESPN is actually talking about Noah Lyles yeah. and track and field. Which so, is right. I so suppose. then good for him. So he's done it. But it is funny to see how triggered a lot of people get by it. I mean, just deal with the fact you're the best basketball player in the world. Fine. Because you're in the NBA. You're, yeah, you are. Yeah. If you're the best in the NBA, you're the best in the world. Yeah. That's how it is. So don't mm. be defensive about it. <laughs> yeah. Like, just say, yeah. yeah, I'm not the world champion because I'm the NBA champion. Mm. I get that. You're right. Yeah. But I'm still the best basketball in the world. I think it feeds into the idea about when people ask that general question about who is the who are the best sportsmen in the world. And the theory goes, and this is my thoughts on it, is that you, you if you if you look at the most competitive sports in the world, if you're top of your game mm. in the most competitive sport, 
therefore you must be one of the best athletes overall. So therefore football soccer players would probably be mm -hmm. right up there yeah. because the pool of talent available to draw from there is enormous. Whereas in track and field, I don't think the pool of talent is exactly the same because there's not that aspirational element. There are not millions and millions of people all over the world wanting to become track and field stars, but there are certainly millions and millions and millions who want to become football players. So it's a, it's a it's a different dynamic, and that's why I'm suggesting that there are probably more people playing basketball and youngsters wanting to be NBA players in America in particular yeah. than there are wanting to be track and field stars. Yeah, I agree. So mm, yeah, I agree. It's musical chairs. Yeah, and some sports have more chairs relative to people than others. Some some sports yeah. have one chair for a million people. Yeah, and that's obviously more competitive. So mm. yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree. I do think athletically, if you analyze purely athletically, basketball's right up there. Oh yeah, I mean, unbelievable athletes. Because to be that size and move with that that <laughs> kind of agility and speed, hand-eye coordination on top of it, and explosive power, that's pretty damn impressive. Mm -hmm. But I also think a lot of people massively underestimate and disrespect the athleticism of a great runner. Yeah, yeah. Because it's oh, what are you doing? You're just running really fast. Yeah. No, no, no. There's a big difference between what Lyles is doing and when you and I run fast. Yeah. That's a massive, those are different humans. And you yeah. only you only ever see that, and I said this before, when you watch an elite athlete warm up, especially those track guys. I remember watching some elite high jumpers, 235, 236 guys warm up. Mm. It's like watching a different species. They didn't move like anyone else on earth. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> they are the very cream. Like, yeah. yeah, that is the pinnacle of athleticism mm. because mm. it is so specific. Mm. Rugby players, great athletes. Footballers, amazing athletes. Mm. Basketball, unbelievable. Mm. But they're almost all-rounders. Mm. If you want to find like the very limits of what an athlete can do, some mm. of those track and field guys are your are the place you go. There's a great image that I saw from the World Championships where they had a, a, a image of um, Noel Lyles warming up before the hundred, and he's just done, done a bounce. In other words, he's gone down and then sort of jumped straight mm. up, and the photographers grabbed him at the top of his of his yeah, jump. And his, his feet and are above head. He's probably mm. yeah, he's probably five meters off because mm. and you and I could never do that deliberately. He's doing that in a warm-up yeah. casually in yeah. a way he does it so, at the blocks just before they yeah, go on your mark it's extraordinary it's like yeah yeah and it's like Simple that easy like power that. that easy just like mm -hmm. it's, it's like when you see us uh, the world's most well-tuned expensive mm. sports car that's what these athletes yeah, are like that's exactly what to, they are mm. yeah I mean, that, that's why, I mean, now we're on to the World Athletics, but that's why I enjoy the 4x400 so much in terms of the relay event because I still believe that if you want to see an athlete at full bore but with the uh, uh, not a, like a sprint is almost so fast that it's you don't get to appreciate it, whereas the four hundred meters you get to appreciate speed, mm. and that four by four hundred meters when you see some of the changes in that four by four hundred meters you get to isolate athletes in that space. When it's a single race with a whole bunch of people together, you see them all together. But the relay you see them almost individually, and you mm. get to see the pace and the speed and the way that they run. And I, I can't agree with you more when you say that they are. They are. They don't move like anybody else. Mm. They are extraordinary, and it's mm. to see it live is something that I never will tire of. I mean, yeah. watching the pole vault the other day with uh, De Plantis. I mean, when you see that, I was I walked around to that side of the stadium so I could be close to the pole vault at one point to get an, a sense of the height of that pole. Mm. And we can talk about six twenty eight, and and you can yeah. look at it on TV. But until you're sitting near the track and see how high that is, mm. you don't appreciate how amazing that athleticism is. Mm. And that was extraordinary. When he put that bar up to that six twenty three, when he was trying to get yeah, um, when he was trying to get the world record again, he he nearly got it. Mm. And 
it was super close. He literally fell down on the ball, but he was over. He just didn't have the speed. Mm. But when you were watching that from the side, I, I watched that first attempt literally probably 20 meters away from where he was. And you, you're looking up, but you're up in the stands and you're still looking up. It's it's amazing. And uh, yeah. It's- Speaking of, I saw that, and I don't know how serious it is or if it's just banter, but they they are seriously, well, it sounds like they are seriously trying to make a 100 meter race happen between him and Warholm. A flat 100. With him and Duplantis? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it sort of came, I remember it happened earlier this year. They were sort of at an event together and they're saying, who do you think would win in 100? They said, oh, we should try it sometime. And now it seems like maybe they want to try it. Oh. But that's the kind of stuff athletics should look to do more of. Yeah, it's a little gimmicky, but it works. It's gimmicky, but it's fun. No, yeah, it's fun, yeah. Remember sure. when John Donovan Bailey and Michael Johnson raced over 150? And then Johnson, mm. I think, did a hamstring in that mm. race, or was it mm. ba- one of the two? Yes, that's but, right. Yes, I do remember no, that. It was also out of yes, the Atlanta Olympics because yes, he had the, both both guys that had broken their world record correct. in their respective events. So that's right. And so they did a one fifty. Um, I remember once seeing Federer and Nadal play one another, half grass, half clay court. One <laughs> half was clay, one half was grey. It was 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 clay, grass and clay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so those things are gimmicky, but I think they are like. And, and the thought occurred to me when Lyles was starting to get all this nonsense from these NBA players, like, "Oh yeah, I'll smoke him in a two hundred. Athletics should have things where that can happen. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like give a, almost to give perspective. Find the fastest guy in the NFL and give him fifteen minute head start, and Lyles will still beat him. Yeah, mm. yeah. In yeah. a one hundred. Yeah, exactly. Give him twenty five meters in a two hundred, he'll still beat him. Yeah, yeah. There was, like, there was a Seattle wide receiver called DK Metcalf, unbelievable athlete, just a freak. Like, mm. remember that these guys have to be contact fit, big, powerful, strong, agile. They're not really running in a straight line. But DK Metcalf tried his hand at track, which was pretty interesting mm. in the 100, and he got pretty handily beaten. Mm. But not resoundingly, which then mm. goes to show how good this guy actually is. Yeah. But again, nobody truly appreciates even – the simplest athletic task, running in a straight line, how remarkable it is that they do it that fast. Yeah, yeah. And now that's, yeah, that's not science necessarily, but it's it's, it's true. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as you say, we've 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 done a couple of in the in the days of um, of running media events, and I remember a few years back we ran ran in a media event where we competed against um, the silver medalist at the World Championships in the four by four hundred meter hurdles, Llewellyn Herbert, mm. and this was probably in the early two late nineties actually, and um, we were at the sixty meter mark, and Llewellyn Herbert was at the hundred meter mark. And he beat all of the journalists <laughs> by about 10 meters over the 100 meters. And we had a 40-meter lead head start. He's twice as fast. He's twice as fast. I mean, that, you know, I mean, I'm not fast, but there were some journalists who were quick. And he beat every single one of the journalists yeah. by five, five meters probably yeah, once. Yeah, but he yeah. came past us like we were standing still. Yeah. And he really you really get a perspective of how fast that is. You can't get that idea until you're actually on the track yourself and you see how fast that is. Yeah. Try and run – try and run – you know, see how fast you can run 100 meters and see how long it takes you to do that. Most people will do 15 seconds. You know, take five seconds. That's a huge. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, and, and to break but, a minute for 400 meters is an outstanding time. Trying but, to break 43 is. But it is true that the non sporty public are notoriously rubbish at understanding how good elite athletes are. Because there's no perspective. Yeah. Remember mm. they asked a bunch of men once how many points they'd win off Serena Williams in a game. And mm. some of them were like, yeah, I'd win a set if I played a match. <laughs> God, you'd be lucky to win a point. Yes. If maybe if she made a double fault or an unforced error on her first shot of the rally, you'd win a point. Mm. <laughs> but you're not winning a point yeah. unless she gives you one. Yeah. And they don't understand it. Though. Like you cannot get people to understand this. So you watch yeah. it, you say, I could do that. 
<laughs> every, every athletic pole vault is probably the only one where I go, I could not do that. No. Every other one I say, I could do that. No. Yeah, will. Yeah. Give the, Just give uh, the... on the 4 by 400 relay, oh. best, best event to see pacing strategy fail. Well, it's... Because, because what happens <laughs> is almost always whoever gets the baton second or third on the final leg works too hard to close the gap for the first 200 and then pays in the last 200. And I watch it Can and I, I say, I see the, even even on the second leg, the, the first changeover, the second changeover, third, every single time someone gets the baton behind someone else, they will, 95 out of 100 times, they will pace it badly. And then it amplifies the mistake they made. I'll say it to Leanne, watch the Dutch, he's going to blow. <laughs> How do you know? Well, because he caught up five meters in the first yes. 150 meters. You're That's not pay. possible. You're yeah. going to pay. pay. Sure enough, 10 Boom. meters behind yeah. at the finish line. Well, it, I mean, it's it, it, such a fascinating illustration of peripheral pacing failures. Yes. Yeah. So that's why it's a great segue into probably choosing my my moments. And there were many moments of the World Athletic Championships, but without a doubt, my moment of that championships was watching that final race, which was the 4 by 400 for women in Femke Bowl, the Dutch Athlete had won the 400 meter hurdles earlier in the week. Yeah, she comes along and. But what had happened even before that? Because that to me well, made she, that yes. four by four win. Yeah, so the four by four by four hundred mixed, which is the yeah. first in the first day of the event, she basically trips and falls and lands on her face. I'm amazed she didn't have a massive yeah. scar on her face, but she didn't mm, seem tartan to have burn. tartan burn. She falls and then she obviously doesn't finish, but she bookends it by winning. And and what when you talked about the pacing strategy, it just reminded me of exactly watching that performance by her because I watched the Dutch the entire race of that because I thought they they must be the favourites going into it. She started, she was in third place going into that final lap. And the one thing she didn't do is close the gap immediately. Hmm. So she paced herself and I thought to myself, she's going to have to close that gap. She probably had six metres to close on the the Jamaican. Um, At the back straight, she still had six metres to close, probably more. There was an aerial shot and, you know, they have the the marking on the track where the the 100 metre hurdles are 10 metres apart. Mm. With 80 to go, there was a full set of hurdles between them. So it was was 10 metres with 100 to go. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in any other situation, nobody's going to close that gap. The Jamaicans got it by far. They come into the final straight. That gap is still significant. I think, well, she might get the Brit who's lying in second place, so she might get silver. In the end, she wins it by the most remarkable finish that I've ever seen in a in a in a heat. And what's interesting about that is that for me, it was perfect pacing. She never panicked. She felt that she could just hold that distance until she had enough gas in the final hundred meters to to give it everything she had, and then she takes the gold medal. And it was one of the most remarkable relay legs I've ever seen. Yeah, it was. And it's something that dramatic, it and it was all something. of those things, the celebrations, all of it that came with it was yeah. was actually incredible. And it and it moved Netherlands up to eighth place mm. um, with their two their their second gold. And of course, Fabrica so, was involved in both of those goals, yeah. but. She, she wins their second gold medal at the World Championships. So a couple of things on it is I'm, I think I'm pretty sure that we could say that her experience in the mixed race helped her win the women's race. How so? Because I think she learned the lesson of like leaving something for the last 80 that she maybe didn't in that race. And it's interesting. I was talking to a U.S. coach from, from California who's out here with our EnduroCat program about it. He works with Brian Benjamin and Michael Norman. And he said, whenever they 
have athletes in a 4 by 400 relay, they tell them when you get the baton in second place, don't go on the shoulder of the person in first because you're actually overexerting. You'll mess up your pacing. And again, if you, this is the point, is you, if you go through the first 200 half a second too fast, you run a 23.5 instead of a 24, you're going to run a second slow in the second 100, 200, right? So he says the thing you've got to do is you want to stay two to four meters behind them. They still know you're there. Because they still you're close enough to still be putting pressure on them, but you're not putting pressure on yourself. And I, I do think in the four by four mixed, the American woman ran a really smart race off ball because she also held her at like two three meters until the last sixty, and then came past her. But ball clearly just failed in that race because she ran a fr- pretty slow time. Mm. She fell over at the end for tea. She said it was a bit of cramp. So I do think that she probably took their learning from that into this one and said, all right, you know what, I'm going to actually not go out as hard as I might normally have done. Because I reckon ball ran, you never run even splits in a 400, but you can run closer to even than other times. You know, there's there's different degrees Mm. of slowing down. And I think ball got it like really, really well. The Jamaican not in the women's race. Yeah, but the Jamaican wasn't that much slower because when you look compared to, I mean, unless the Jamaican and the British athlete who were lying first and second going into that final 100 metres, unless they slowed down dramatically, they, they were pretty even. It was... Everyone's it, slowing it's, down, it's, eh? It seemed... Yes, I suppose so. So, so just, but it, just seemed for, like, it seemed like Bull was the only one who was accelerating. Yeah, you're not. It's just the other two were really slowing down, right. I think. And this is why I'm yeah. so annoyed that... World, so for the 400-meter women's final and the men, World Athletics are giving 100-meter splits. Mm-hmm. For the 4x4s, no splits. <laughs> so I can't, I can't give you numbers. But I want to give you numbers from the 400-meter women final. I mean, there's one by Paulinho of the Dominican Republic. Mm. 200-meter split, 23-3-6. Finishing time, 48.76. So a little bit of math shows. 23.36, 25.4. The second 200 is two seconds slower than the first sure, 200. That's a lot. With a standing start in the first 200. <clears throat> wow, okay. Okay? Sure. The, the athlete who, who came second in that race, 23.46. Finishing time, 49.57. So that is a 26 <laughs> second, second 200. So, wow! Right, so That's, the numbers make yeah, you think. I didn't realize right? it would be that much. It's a massive drop. I thought off you were talking about points here rather no, than seconds. No, and then on the men's side, Antonio Watson, twenty-three seven. Okay, that's definitely wrong. Obviously, there's some glitches. The guy in second, twenty-one zero six for the first two hundred, forty-four three one. So that's a twenty-three two five for the second two hundred off the back of a twenty-one zero six. So two seconds. Wow. So the second two hundred and a four hundred is about two seconds slower than the first two hundred. And as you say, that's that, that's that's the that's the difference, and that's the that's the correct. flying correct start in, yeah. the, in the second two hundred, and you're still two seconds slower. So effectively, that you could almost say that's almost three two seconds. and a half to three seconds slower. Yeah. 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 Now, Sheesh. so when you when you look at that and you say, okay, ball made up at the speeds they run, that eight meters in the last straight is probably almost a second. No, not mm. no. Yeah, let's let's for the sake of simplicity call it a second, which means her her last two hundred is a second faster than the Jamaicans, but also going to be running a positive split. The Jamaican ran a forty nine something, forty nine nine. So let's call it fifty. Mm-hmm. Ball was forty eight eight seven. So it's called a 48.9, second two. faster. Mm. That difference was achieved entirely in the last 200 meters. And it's because the Jamaican probably ran a three and a half to four second faster first half than second under pressure because she knows but you're going to be But obviously knows and, and she's almost risking it because she's waiting for them to mm. effectively slow down. 
and, and, and banking on them, in fact, slowing down. So it'd be so interesting. I mean, in the women's <laughs> 400 flat individual, the fastest time to 200 meters was the race winner. No, it was Lika Klava, who ended up seven. 2306. <laughs> <laughs> How's this one? 2306 to 200. Ends up in 5033. So 27.27 for the second 200. Oh, that's a massive drop, isn't it? It's big, eh? Wow. That's like an 800 meter athlete. Yeah. 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 And so wow. that's the mistake. And incidentally, Lika Klaver ran the fastest leg in that whole mixed uh, that whole relay. Yes, well, and you would never have forty eight yes. seven. So and you would never have them. thought that. You mm. would think Femke Boll would have absolutely smashed yeah. it. Yes. So Lika Klaver is capable of a four okay, now you get a running start when you're in the second leg of the four and it's it's not quite translatable. But Klaver is a better athlete than a fifty point three. But the reason in the individual that she didn't get that is because she ran a twenty three oh six. If she starts that race in twenty three four, like Paulinho, She's not running a 27 six second half. She'd run a 26.5. She'd be half a second faster. And then all of a sudden, that looks like a medal, you know? Yeah. And, and you, that, so that's happening in all races. Someone's going out too hard. Someone's not going out hard enough. But in a 4x4 four four relay, it's so obvious because you see it every, every, every what do you call it? Uh, every leg of a 4x400 four relay has, is an act in two parts. Who caught up? Because if you're caught up, you're dropping off. <laughs> yes. If you didn't catch up in the first 200, mm. you're going to catch up in the second. Mm. And it's that such team, fun. Yeah, that, that's what's amazing to watch <laughs> because obviously those athletes feel the team pressure of having yeah. to catch that gap up. Yeah. Because at least they've got a chance. But you're right. You don't. You don't. And exactly. Femke Bowles, um tactics were absolutely yeah. spot on. That's what made that that particular leg feel so brilliant. Yes. In the fact that she didn't panic and she, as you said, she's correctly paced so, that. So it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if the women's race was won in 48.7 and Bol ran almost the same time in her leg as the, which is slower because of the running start Bol had mm. versus Paulinho, right? Mm. So 48.8 in a relay is not worth a 48.8 in a flat race. Yes. Individual race. But it's interesting. If, if Paulinho ran 23.4 and 20. Five three, I reckon Bowl probably ran a more even pace even than that, and that's why it looked so pronounced to catch mm. up. Mm. It's just the to be patient enough, knowing that you're on the last leg of a relay going for a gold medal. To be that patient and to time it that well is really really good. And I would like to think that she took the lessons of the first race on board in order to get that right. Because yeah. it was a really appropriate way to end off. Yeah, it was, it was, it was perfect. Perfect symmetry in the World Champs as a consequence of that. For those of you who want to watch my reaction to that, you can actually go onto our Instagram page because as that finished, I just pressed record on Instagram just to thank everybody for their participation in some of our Instagram's lives that we've done um, on Instagram that week. And um, I, I think I've watched that myself purely because it's so exciting to watch that um and mm. it was yeah it was a, a great highlight i mean other uh, i'd like to ask what well, i mean you weren't there but i know mm. that you watched the athletics with as much interest as, as i did being there yep uh, i mean that's that stands out as a highlight no lars willing the double in fact willing the triple if you count the four by 100 as, as one of the highlights chapter guy although it was boring winning the ten thousand, i thought was just the most dominant brilliant performance that I've seen you know just the way he runs is just so majestic and I thought that Amanda Duplantis hmm. you know winning the pole vault with such incredible ease an event that we often talk about as being so technical he wins the gold and he tries to go for two world he attempts the world um, record three times misses every time but gets super close yeah. on two of those Um those are the sort of things that come to, to, to into, into my mind. And the women's 200 meters, of course, uh, with Shakira, Richard, um, Sharika. Uh, Sharika. Um, mm. 
also a, another great performance. Jackson. Jackson, Jackson, that's right, yeah. So, uh, you know, those are the sort of things that stand out for me to World Championships. Mm. The interesting thing, as we discussed in the podcast, is that arguably temperatures and the weather played a bigger role than it did in Doha, yeah. uh, which was two World Championships away because Doha had the air conditioners that kept the track and the cool. Dry, and the dry air. And dry the dry air. air whereas I, I can tell yeah. you in Budapest, I know my clothing that went into the wash yesterday will be a testament to it as well. It was... It was the hottest week I've ever experienced at any event anywhere. And I was I remember being in Atlanta in 1996. I remember being in Barcelona in 1992. I'm showing my age here. But those were hot. But I never experienced heat do and humidity like I did in Budapest. So would you endorse Seb Coase as Budapest is ready to host the Olympics? Would you endorse that? Maybe, I, in, I, maybe in September. I mean, late September. It has to be later. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. It's <laughs> hard just, to do that. Though. Imagine yeah. cycling for five, six hours in there. It is just brutal. Yeah. And I agree. I think, I mean, people who live in the area, they say that this is the, this time of the year, it starts cooling down now from September. So the middle of September, yeah. it starts cooling down. But I can tell you that having an Olympics in August, July, August would be, yeah. oh, it would be, there'd be some big problems to pay. But then we said the same thing about the Doha World Championships, um, that there was going to be this big problem and that we'd never be able to they have marathons at midnight because it was so hot. But and like were, the winning, let's, let's, that winning time in those marathons was not like not super terrible. slow, eh? No, what was it, two? Two or eight in the men's. It's not bad for and a the championship women's 222, race. yeah. I mean, it's not, at the level that the world's the majors are, but it certainly but it's certainly was competitive. Yeah, it's at like a New York unpaced mm. normal New York sort of race. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, the South Africans, having spoken to them on the finishing line of both those events, um, said that the heat was a significant factor. And one of our South African hopes, who was probably our biggest hope, he literally started feeling dizzy 25Ks into it and he had to eventually bail from the race because he felt the temperature was too high. Yeah, but again, I, but I, lots I don't of them know didn't. what the prep is, so maybe it's unfair to say that, but yeah. it wouldn't surprise me if he's done all his prep up in Johannesburg. Yeah, so it's been freezing. Where he wakes up in the morning, it's five degrees Celsius, and he yeah. tries to get his training in before it gets even to 15. Yeah. And then you can go from that to 35 and 95% humidity. Yeah. Of course it's going to happen, you know. So yeah. it's, to me, like a betrayal of a lack of physiological preparation, maybe. Yeah. Remember when Tiguani won the Atlanta Olympic Games? They were in New Mexico. Were they in Albuquerque, Albuquerque, right? That's right, yeah. They were there for a month or something before that. Him and Tace, and yeah. I forget who the third one was. You may know. Yeah. But that's what it takes. So Lili Yawa. That's, that. that's right, yeah. yeah. That's what it takes. So mm. you can anticipate no a little bit. But, I mean, they get, there does get to a point where it actually is detrimental to the quality of what you see. Yeah. And yeah. I do think we saw that even on the track in the distance races. Mm. My my own personal highlights, the, the the bowl one, the first night where bowl fell only 20 minutes after Hassan fell and the Dutch woman had discovered a tripwire on the home straight, <laughs> was, that was probably like that. I've, I've never seen... It was bizarre. I mean, the best the best competitive race in the whole champs was the women's 10,000. To see Tsege uh, and Hassan like basically bump in shoulders all the way down the home straight before one of them fell over it was for me like that was like edge of the seat stuff a lot of the races didn't have that which i found a little anticlimactic there were great races but like the men's 400 for instance was a procession the women's 400 was a procession the there were a lot of races that didn't have that epic jeopardy all the way to the last meter um the field events, on the other hand, did. I know you're not a massive field event follower, but I tell you what, the men's long jump. Yeah, that was very good. Locked at 8.50. Greek guy wins it on the last jump. The, the bronze was also decided on countback. 
the men's discus where the Swedish fella stole one gold on like the last throw, having lost it on the second last throw, having gained it on his previous throw. That was like mm-hmm. boxers throwing blows. The women's triple jump, Rojas from Venezuela, oh, yes. was nowhere. Scraped into the last batch of getting three extra jumps in eighth place. Two fouls, last jump of the competition, jumps to win it. Amazing. Because she looked like she'd lose her unbeaten streak. So there's some amazing field events. From a from an interest perspective, but but like and 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 cool, but frustrating is the way the East Africans race the five thousands. Yeah, so stupid. <laughs> like, well, they only seem to watch each other. The Ethiopians, Ugandans, uh, sorry, Ethiopians and and Kenyans just seem to watch and only care about each other. They're but, just terrified of each other, really. But but there's a guy in the race with a three twenty seven fifteen hundred. Yeah, and another one with a three twenty eight fifteen hundred. Mm. And you and you're gonna run a thirteen forty pace. Like, I can 100% guarantee how every single one of those races is going to end when you see that where they, they start. It's so stupid. <laughs> and they never seem to learn. I don't understand. And the point to the listeners is when you've got a guy with that finishing speed, and it's not last lap necessarily, it's last kilometer, last 800 meters, and you give Ingebrigtsen the opportunity to run a fast 1,000 off the back of a comparatively slow 4,000, you will 100% of the time lose. Yes. And when you've got another guy, Katia, who's got the same ability as Ingebrigtsen, just 1% less, you're 100% fighting for bronze. And so those Ethiopians that were running 1240s, 1239s, they were threatening 1240 barrier early this year. Not one of them got a medal because they all ran like idiots. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, it's so <laughs> stupid. And the same thing with you a, really feel. It's the same thing with a woman with Kipyagon. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think Kipyagon's beatable. Even if you run a world record, she'll still beat you because she's yeah. the world record holder. Yeah. But the, they didn't even give themselves a chance of beating her because they just jogged it out for 3K. And you, you can imagine Faith Kipiagon with 3K is gone. She says, now it's a 2,000. Mm. One lap later, she says, now it's a one mile. I'm the world record holder in that and I'm not even working hard. Mm. This is perfect for me. And it's the same thing Inga Britson must have been thinking. It's that it, it, it relates to that concept of durability. You know, if you, if you put those men in a 1,200 meter three lap race, Ingebrigtsen wins every one of them because he's the best at it. So the only chance you have in a 5,000 is you have to use the first 3,800 to load him up with so much fatigue that he can't access that 1,200 ability. It's the only chance you have. And they never do it. Mm. They didn't do it against Farah. They didn't do it now against this guy. It's so frustrating watching them run it because it's it's almost like they've just conceded that this is how we're going to lose. I guess it's a bit like in any at a championship, and maybe it also applies to the Diamond League events. But you, essentially, you if you don't by going out hard, you risk failure yourself. Yeah, that's the problem. It's so, a, it's, a, so, it's a economic so, decision. All right, we're going to lose gold, but maybe I can get silver and bronze here if I just hang in and mm. and and have a chance. Whereas if I go out hard and try and break somebody like Faith Kibiagan, which I'm not going to do 99% of the time, then what's the point? Same thing, Ingebrigtsen. You know, he's everybody entering that 5,000 had read the stories online and in the media talking about the fact that he he ran in the qualifying round of the 5,000 with a sore throat and a headache and a mm. fever. So everybody's thinking, oh, well, he's not well. 
So we've got all a chance more, here. All the more reason to say, can you run 1305? Yeah. Because I can. Those are the opens. They know I can do that. Maybe they can't. Maybe that's the difference. Maybe in June, July, in Diamond League, they can do that. And when, when the scrutiny is on them, maybe they can't. Hint, hint. <laughs> I don't know. But something's wrong with the way they come into these world championships because they just consistently underperform relative to what they do at other times in the season. Because, mm. yeah. And you know what it is? Like, I, you see a lot of people saying, don't take the risk. When that Aragawi fella ran the 12.40, he was leading from shortly after 2Ks. And he just went onto the front and he pulled. And I think the Ugandan Kibruto was the other one with him. I mm. forget who it was. It was this either Kibruto or, or Chapter guy. Yeah. In, this was in the Diamond League in, in uh, Florence or Rome. I forget. It's one of those. It's, a, it's the Italian mm. Diamond League. And Aragawi went to the front and he said, right, I'm going to run pretty close to world record pace for the last 3K, front running it. So you know he can do it. Then he must do it. He doesn't need to run 1240. He could have run 1257, 1258. And that group would have been very thin. And maybe Ingebrigtsen still sits in and beats him. But at least he tried. But the way they ran it, 246 first K. Uh-uh. Yeah. I mean, let's just watch this going, oh, here we go again. We've yeah. seen this movie so many times. I never learn. But do they learn or they just, as I Unable. say, are, Unable. I, I, I think it's something to do. I think it's something to do with that. And I, I always look back, and I don't remember many events, especially at that level, where the favourite, and Jok- Ingebrigtsen in the fifteen hundred is probably a good example where it actually is kind of goes against that. But he finished the second there to a guy who goes early. But, but largely the the person with the strongest finish doesn't often get dropped off the bat. Doesn't often get fatigued enough not to be able to use his kick. Mm. Um, so it's a it's a really big risk because you really have to go right close to the limit of your ability to stand a chance of breaking that person what behind I'd, you. You know what I'd do is I'd go two hundred hard, one hundred off, two hundred hard, one hundred off. Surge, yeah. And if you think about it in terms of like an FTP concept, you know, cycling functional threshold power in running, you can talk, talk about like a critical velocity. Mm. Like these guys have all got a velocity that they know they can run for five k. If you go a little faster than that, you start burning matches. If you go a little slower than that, you recover your matches. I would be taking him above, below, above, below, mm. above, below, and see if you can yo-yo him off the pace. Yeah, yeah. Because if you run one pace and you're not significantly faster than his critical velocity, you're not going to drop him. Mm. But the problem is if you go significantly above his critical velocity, you're probably above yours too. <laughs> so now it's right. a question of whose matches burn out faster. Yeah. And more likely not it's you because you're yeah. in the front with a bit of tension. Yeah. So yeah. what I would do, even in a 1500, is I'd run, I'd run a 26-second 200, mm. and then I'd run a... 15 second 100 then i go 26 15 26 15 and see see how he copes with that disruption to the physiology you know Mm, mm. but but i i don't know look if he's too good he's too good but you know he's too good over 1200 and that's what happened in that what was the last k of that 50 of that 5000 it was like something like 223 or something yeah yeah none of them can do it except him yeah so you just gave him the race yeah I find it very frustrating. You know, did it? You know, tried and failed was the woman in the steeplechase, Chip Coach. Oh yes, that's she true. tried. She went to the front. She said, "I'm going to run sub nine because mm. I know that I don't have a kick, and if I can go sub nine, that's my best chance." And it didn't work because Yavi stayed on her and she outkicked her. Mm, mm. <laughs> but at least she got silver out of it. If she'd run nine fifteen, she'd outkick by three people. She'd yeah. come fourth. Yeah. So good for her. She yeah. tried, didn't work perfectly, but mm. it gave her something. Mm. The Ethiopians mm. get nothing because yeah. they don't do anything. Yeah. 
<laughs> so final thoughts, I was just looking at the middle table and it's always interesting to look at middle tables and when you think about what a middle table at a World Athletic Championship should look like, you'd probably say, right, United States, they're going to be top of that middle table and they are. But then you think, who's second? Who's the second strongest country in the world in athletics in terms of the World Athletic Championships? And I wouldn't have thought of this nation, but it's Canada. So Canada yeah. was second with four golds, six medals in total. I don't think Canada think of themselves think, as that yeah, based second, on the reaction I saw on Twitter. <laughs> they were surprised. Exactly. Spain was third. Jamaica was fourth. So you think, well, Jamaica's fourth. That's quite low down in the scheme of things. But they got 12 medals in all. So they got the most amount of medals outside of the Americans. Then you but had remember, the, Jamaica really are only vying in, in about three events. So like, yeah. Did, did Jamaica win anything other than up to 400? So long Jamaica jump, jump won sure. two 400, 100 meter hurdles. Those are all the goals. And they won four by four um, silvers in the four by 100s relay. Long jump silver, 100 meters silver with Sharika Jackson, 110 meter hurdles silver. And then they got the four bronze and the relays, 400 mm. meter hurdles, long jump. So there is there's a long jump. There's two long jumps in there. So there's two yeah. TJ Gale and um, Wayne Pin- Wayne Pinnock yeah, in, yeah, in the long jump. Yeah, so yeah. that was. Um, I mean, they got yeah. Effectively, they got um, silver and bronze in the long jump, which is yeah. quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't you don't think of Jamaicans as sort of field event cars but yeah, I suppose long jump is long jump. Is, is a sprinting event in many ways and they well. had the triple jump kid who got injured he probably would have medaled as well so yeah yeah. and then yeah so and then Kenya also a lot of medals 10 medals in total 3 golds Ethiopia only got the 2 golds and but always the one of the surprising nations and it's a, it's a country that I think probably deserves to be high at the middle table just in terms of outperforming their size Uganda got Two golds. The only medals they got was the gold. They got the ten thousand with chapter guy, and they got the Kimberley in the marathon. Mm. So you know, it's it's they're a tiny little country, but they they certainly coming suddenly the Ugandan colours, which are very distinctive, are suddenly to the fore now. It's not just Ethiopians and Kenyans running these marathons. It's suddenly there's Ugandans in there. That are and doing you know what the thing is? Of course, the physiologist me says. Those Ugandans are from the same group of people that produce the Kenyans. It just happens yes. that they run in a different vest because of the sort of, not accident, but almost like the way the borders are drawn. Mm. But they're actually the same people. Yes. They come from just the same subtri- same tribe and subtribe. And we did a paper many years ago no. where we looked at the contribution of different Kenyan tribes. Mm-hmm. And the Nandi tribe in particular are overrepresented by factors in excess of 100. Sure. Okay. In fact, that one tribe has won more medals than Europe. <laughs> in fact, no, sorry. It's won more medals than any other continent other than Europe mm. in distance running events. Mm. It's like remarkable. And these guys are from the same group of people. Okay, so that makes sense. Yeah. Might be different countries, but actually they are the similar sort of... It's just a different flag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So yeah, yeah. so that, that's the interesting thing about the middle table. And 39 countries winning medals in all. Um, some of them, I always find it fascinating when you have people winning one gold. And there were a couple of nations who have won... One got Venezuela, as you mentioned yeah, briefly. That was the triple, that, jump. was the triple yeah. jumper. Um, Panama in the in the pole vault, I think. This guy yeah. came second was Panamanian, wasn't he? Yeah. For, no, Philippines. Sorry, Philippines. getting my, my letters yeah. starting with P. Philippines second in the pole vault. I'd never That's heard right. of a Filipino athlete before, like at that level. So that was interesting. I'm just trying to see what I can see. I did Filipino read out of interest: 46 medal-winning countries, which is a record. Never, never had as many. Nations win a medal yeah. at a world champs than this 46. Not yeah, the official medal table has it as only 39. But yeah, but there's a t- seven on the seven on 39. If you look at the uh, yeah. yes, okay, yeah. right, right. Um, Germany, not one of them for the first time ever. 
South Africa, not one of them, not for the first time ever. No, well, for the, <laughs> for the third time for, in a row. For, for the third time in a row, no medals, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're absolutely in rubbish. In fact, second last absolutely. on the middle table. Absolutely. In terms of overall rankings, we only had one athlete in the top eight. Oh, it's rubbish. So it's disappointing with weight for Nikirk. <laughs> so anyway, we won't talk about that too um, much. Yeah, so 46, you know, deep. That's the thing. It's, it, is the, it is the global mm. sport. It is. It might not have the same quality and depth of competition, but in terms of the breadth of competition, it is mm. the global sport. Yeah. So forty six, yeah, it's uh, yeah, quite something. I mean, so, uh, India gold medal in the javelin, eh? The javelin, yes. That's the most followed athlete in the world in in social media. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that. I yeah. I did that. I I know that there was some discussion about that, but those are Nirav Niraj Chopra. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what's interesting about that, and this is a complete aside, that in South Africa. I think the two most followed people in cricket in South Africa yes. are two of the most followed people on social media in South Africa yeah, are two, two cricketers, cricketers. Um, mainly because they're mainly followed by a lot of IPL. people in India. Mm. Um, and I think that is Smith. Um, no, it's um, uh, Stain. Stain and Navy de Villiers. So those mm. two are the most followed social media yeah. channels in South Africa, yeah. not because they are followed by South Africans. Well, 5%. <laughs> and Chopra is a prime example of somebody who comes from a country where there are a billion people. Yeah, 5% of 1.1 yeah. billion know you. That's, exactly. that's a fairly busy. So Niraj Chopra, yeah. how many followers do you say he has on I think social media? Six and a half million. I heard that said go. on, so, on so commentary. Let's, let's just juxtaposition that against uh, um, Shakari Richardson, Richardson 2.8 now I think it is yeah so mm. 2 point yeah she would have gone up because the last time I looked she was 2.5 just, just over double yeah so she's mm. more, yeah and, and she's a I mean she's a massive social media you look at people like Carsten Walt and those kind of guys they're looking at 480 to 500,000 followers mm. which is relatively small in celebrity yeah in celebrity yeah. stuff but yeah. I know why Shakari Richardson gets the followers she does because half the time she's not wearing <laughs> much clothing <laughs> that's yeah but that's not for me I don't mind that that's... and she's and she's and she's yeah she looks she raises the, the, the level of the sport and she creates <laughs> interest around it and she's outspoken and yeah. she's controversial and she's colourful and yes, yeah. I guess that's not a bad um, thing. Yeah, so, and then Pakistan, I think it's Javelin Silver went to a Pakistani thrower. Javelin's really interesting. Uh, yeah, because Javelin's remember we had a Kenyan winner a few years back, Trinidad and Tobago. Javelin seems to be, in a lot of the events, you know, like you, you have a dominance of US and Jamaican sprinters. You have a dominance of East African distance runners plus a couple of Norwegians now. And a bit here and there in the middle distances. Mm. Javelin seems to me to be the most open. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, like, which discipline in track and field has produced the most medal-winning, different, unique, unique. medal-winning countries yeah. in the last thirty years. And you're right about Pakistan. Good memory. Arshad yeah. Nandim yeah. was the silver medalist in that. So mm. yeah. <laughs> anyway, I mean, my final thoughts, and I think this is always the question about athletics, is that we we was the World Championship successful in terms of promoting the sport? Was it good for the continuation of the sport? Because I went into the World Championships with a, a little sense of apprehension, saying, is track and field, is it a sport that is facing the challenge of being able to compete in the in the for the eyeballs against many of the other sports around the world that are more exciting. Um, we talked a little bit on our podcast during the week about the fact that they're changing certain things by not having the medal ceremonies during the events so mm. that you don't have that long pause and break. You keep the events moving. They are definitely moving in that direction. I think they need to do more in terms of that. I think the World Championships are spread out over too many days. There were too many days yeah. where there was not many two, events two to talk about. Two finals a night. It's yeah, not enough. It's, it's not enough. The density is too low. Yeah. yeah. So you've got to make it a bit more exciting. Yeah. And then you talk about yeah. World Track and Field at a, at a sort of 
macro level in terms of the Diamond League and those sort of events, yes, it is. It is. I still believe it is attracting the anoraks, the, the enthusiasts. Mm. It's not. It's not attracting the wider population, and I think that's the challenge for them. And I think World Championships brings the Nolas to the fore and lets them shout about the fact they're world champions. It creates controversy with people like Shakari Richardson, but. At the macro level, I still think track and field has got a lot to do to make itself competitive when you look at the sports it's competing against, football, you know, cycling to some extent, American sports. You know, American sports have affected, you know, the cricket development in in the West Indies, for instance, because American sports have taken all the great fast bowlers and turned them into basketball players instead Mm. of fast bowlers. So, you know, it's all about eyeballs. And I think that we've just seen Seb Coe given another term as president. I think he's on the right track. But I still think we are a long way from the sport being a sport that the average person will go, well, I want to watch that. You know, um, I think that's that's going to be the challenge. I do think a big part of it is that it's so spread out and you can't think about other sports. You you don't have a sporting event last week. Like It's almost like Wimbledon or mm. French Open. Now it's the US Open. Imagine two matches a day with meaning. I mean, okay, the rest of them are... I suppose you could argue that a fourth round match it doesn't have the same meaning. It's the equivalent of a semi final of the women's four hundred yeah. at the World Champs. But like the top billing, everyone watches on a Wednesday night because tonight we're gonna see the women's four hundred and the men's fifteen hundred, for example, whatever. Yeah. It's just not enough. Yeah. You know, knowing that I'm gonna to have to wait three more days to see the equivalent on the other side of the you know, the women's versus the men's and vice versa. Yeah. Interestingly, I saw just this afternoon, they're now in Zurich because we're sitting here on a Thursday yeah, afternoon. Tonight is the Weltklasse, which is yeah. too close to Worlds. The performances won't be good because they'll be too tired. Well, in saying that, uh, I remember I went to the Weltklasse a couple of times after World Championships and there was always that sense that the very best would deliberately hold back on their performances if they were in shape to wait to break world records at the world class. Because it's worth a lot. Because it's worth a lot more but, money than world champs. Yeah, it's just, I think in this one, it's too close. It's mm. like only four days. Normally, it's like a week. You give it a week and a half. Perfect. Mm. I don't know whether Duplantis is competing Mate, at the Valk class. It'll be mm. interesting to see if he does. But like a lot of sprinters easily pulled out. Break the eh? world record. Uh, Shikari Richardson out. Fraser Price out. I think they just decide now, you know, it's actually had enough now. Oh. But anyways, the point I was making is that there's a press conference and Sebastian Coe is at this conference and someone tweeted, Sebastian Coe with more details on the new World Athletics event in 2026. I don't know this was coming. 16 track athletes per event, eight field athletes per event, three nights, the best of the best. Hmm. So that sounds like they're going to try and create something that's more condensed where it's invitational only. You earn your way in through a season and then you come for three days. I think mm. that helps. Yeah. I do think the national competing for your country gives worlds something that the Diamond League doesn't have. Diamond League Correct. is full of, you watch tonight, you watch 1500, there's going to be 16 guys in that race, 12 of them in the same vest, three in one and one in an, one odd one out. One unsponsored bloke, <laughs> yes. three from one club and 12 from another. Yeah. And they're all going to wear in the same shoes. And it's like there's, no, there's nothing differentiating. Yeah. There's no story behind that. It's You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that the national flag gives it something so i would if i was doing this thing three nights i'd want them in their national kits mm. i think that adds something i, agree I know with you on that. it takes away from the sponsors but again you're going to struggle to get their past sponsors aren't you correct yeah, yeah. and that's the problem so you got to you got to figure out a way maybe it's mm. maybe it's yeah. teams maybe maybe you do something like that. you've got to you got to do something to differentiate this mm. massive sort of faceless nameless folk you know mm. and then 
What was the other thing I was going to say? Oh, Stuart Strang wrote in on Patreon and said, you know, like in cycling, if you win the world title, you get to wear a, a unique jersey for the next 12 months. Track and field should have that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a good one, eh? That's a good one, yeah. yeah. Maybe it should be a headband. Yeah, so Lyle's, <laughs> Lyle's is the rainbow headband. The rainbow headband. Next thing, the transgender communities will start saying, no, that's, you, you support one a lot. We won't let you use that logo. It's misappropriating. Um, <laughs> cultural misappropriation. But the... Uh, you know, so Lyles lines up in a 100 or 200, he can wear it. If uh, Shakari Richardson's in a 100, she can wear the rainbow vest, but she can't wear it in a 200. Mm. Only Jackson can wear it there. Yeah, Ingebrigtsen can wear it in a 5K, not in a 1500. There's no one in a 3000 because there's no event. Mm. I think that would be quite cool. Even if, if it was just stripes across the vest that they have on, you could easily yeah, do that. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a great idea. So, yeah. because people say, oh, what's, what's a jersey? It's just a logo. It's just an emblem. But actually, it it communicates something that worlds mm. matter, you know? Mm. And I think that would be it's such an easy thing for them to introduce. So, Seb, if you listen to yep. this, it's Stuart that you have to thank on Patreon. Sign up on Patreon and we will make you famous with IAAF. And I'll tell you what, if I could change one thing about the Diamond League and all these non-World Championship Olympic Games mm. things. Paces. Paces. I cannot, I just don't believe that paces you, yes you might not see as many world records but you'll see a better racing you should alternate them you should have, yeah, you should have an maybe. a and a b race uh, alternating not not on the same night but you should say florence paced yeah. oslo unpaced yes. that's a fair compromise uh, zurich paced brussels non-paced yes yeah just yeah, so like, you can change it up a bit okay. yeah because yeah. it isn't just about time i don't I, I mean i can watch a world record and it doesn't look any different from somebody who's it's not half as a exciting because it's one bloke running yeah, by himself exactly almost, yeah that's and, and that's why we didn't talk about it mm. but yes i i think overall the, i will certainly watch the rest of this this eval cluster tomorrow night with a great deal more interest having been so much part of the world athletics champs mm. mm. um, and don't and forget I, to watch it tonight because tomorrow, oh, tonight, 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 <laughs> tomorrow night you it's might be, be looking a, for it i'll be i'll be watching the the, the repeat tomorrow <laughs> night um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I, 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 I agree. It's I, I love to see. I mean, as somebody and you and I are both similar, in that we do love track and field and we want to it to succeed. And I think it's wonderful that we do get to celebrate it every couple of years. Yeah, and the Olympics no, I, next year are going to be interesting in track and field as well. I because, can't wait for the next. I, I'm so disappointed I didn't go to Budapest. <laughs> well, Tokyo is next. I'm not mad World on champs. that. You've been be to Tokyo I've been a few there times, and I couldn't wait to leave it because I just felt so claustrophobic. <laughs> It's a place. Like, I couldn't. I wait. haven't been there. I couldn't so. wait to get on one of those Shinkansen trains and go to the mountains and be like in a calm, quiet place. I just, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm from a small town. I don't like the big city life. And Tokyo will be a bit mad. Well, like I'll that. go and represent the science sport. Let's at do the, it. The, the Paris would be cool, but the Olympics will be manic. Yeah, but the interesting thing, and I will tell you one thing: the observation that I made, there is definitely a sense amongst the athlete that the Olympics is the pinnacle way better than the world champs i mean it's obvious because you're only having an olympics every four years but the, the the difference between competing and being a world champion to really succeed from the athlete's perspective is is the olympics that's mm. the ultimate uh, reward i think for a well, track and field athlete manifest in the sydney mclaughlin non-presence yes in the well she came she was injured but yeah we don't know yeah if she had the same injury for the olympics she'd go yes i think I mean, yes. we don't know. She was sure. supposed to go to the World Champs. I mean, in fact, her New Balance posters were all over mm. Budapest, everywhere. She was emblazoned on every street pole that I yeah. had walked past, yeah. but she wasn't even at the World Champs. Yeah. But she was, she was so supposed to be. That was a shame. 
Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Right. So, as we say, a lot is coming up on the world of sporting science. Rugby World Cup about to start. We've got the Vuelta on at the moment. Um, and we'll be back next week to bring you another episode. But uh, for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.